Good morning. It's so good to see each of you here this Palm Sunday. Today we're remembering that Sunday in which Jesus entered Jerusalem and he was acclaimed as the King God had promised was going to come, the Messiah, the Christ. But we know how that went, right? Uh, in less than a week, Jesus would be hanging on a cross, shamed and despised. And as he hung on that cross, one of the last things he said was a quote from a psalm that David wrote centuries earlier. The despair of the cross was a necessary thing, but the Father didn't fail. And Jesus arrived on the other side of it, victorious over sin and death, crowned king of creation, given all authority on heaven and on earth. Today we're going to look at that psalm that he quoted and consider what it meant to David, what it meant to Jesus, and perhaps what it should mean to us today. I've titled the message, Two Kings in Despair. We're looking at Psalm 22. Let's begin, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. David is clearly in a very difficult moment of his life. He doesn't specify in the psalm when he's writing this. I suspect this might have been when he was running for his life from King Saul. You know the story. David was a young boy who loved God, trusted God, and uh, was not terribly uh, appreciated by the rest of his family. Uh, they didn't seem to think much of him, but he didn't mind. He was taking care of the sheep, and he had this trust in God that uh, even as a youth, uh, a lion would come to try to attack the sheep, and, and he, would, he would trust that God would give him victory over this lion, and he would slay the lion and save the sheep, or a bear, and God would grant him what he needed to succeed. And he had this easy trust in God from from early childhood and then he's he's visiting his brothers at the front line as they're in the army defending Israel from their enemies the Philistines when the Philistine champion nine feet what is it nine feet nine feet nine inches tall ginormous guy shows up and challenges the armies of Israel he curses the God of Israel and calls them all a bunch of cowards and send me a man to fight and everybody is shaking in their boots. And David hears this and says, who is this guy to defy the living God? And when nobody else steps up to deal with them, David says, okay, if nobody else will do it, I'll do it. And God did with him, with Goliath, the same thing he had done with the lion and with the bear. He uh, killed the champion of the Philistine army. And that started a whole change in his life. All of a sudden, he was brought into the uh, royal court of King Saul and uh, was a, a personal assistant to Saul. And, and Saul was sending him out to lead military operations. And he was having success left and right. Everything was going great. And he was a, a post child for how great things go when you trust God 
until Saul disobeyed God repeatedly and God said I'm done with you I'm going to find me a king after my own heart and then Saul noticed that David was that person and Saul was envious and jealous and threatened and he determined that even though David had never lifted a finger against him had never done anything but be loyal to him Saul decided he was going to have him killed and David found himself running for his life and he was scraping by, uh, hiding in caves and holes in the wall and, and any place he could try to get to. And he ended up going to neighboring nations to hide, to Moab. And eventually was so desperate, he even went to hide among the Philistines, their enemies. And so many times his, his life was hanging by a thread. He was running on one side of a mountain and Saul and the whole army of Israel were on the other side chasing him down. And I think that's probably the moment in his life when he writes this. And he's, he's reached this moment where he just feels like God's not listening. And all he ever did was do the right thing. Why is this happening? Notice the intimacy. This isn't just some distant deity that David is talking to. My God. This is somebody that David uh, believes is, is very close to him. My God. He cries out. Why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from saving me? I need rescue and you're nowhere. All I can do is groan in pain and you don't seem to even want to hear it. He says, I cry during the day, dead silence, not a word. I cry at night, there's no relief. I find it very interesting that Jesus chose this as one of the final things he said before he died. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did Jesus quote this? I, I, there are a lot of thoughts on that. I think the most, uh, perhaps one of the more common ways to look at it is that Jesus is simply expressing his agony at what he's going through on the cross after all he is bearing with the sins of the world that's what John the Baptist said when he saw him John 1 29 behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and John again writes in 1st John chapter 2 verse 2 he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world so ponder for a moment I can think of things that I've done wrong and I can think, okay, what would be the just punishment for that wrong thing that I did? And I can probably come up with something. And I can think of horrible things that criminals and, and wicked, wicked people have done out there and uh, horrendous things. What would the just punishment be for that? 
Well, take that and say, let's, let's add up not just mine and that other person I'm thinking about, but let, let's add up the wrongs of all of us in the whole world. And let's not just do that. Let's go back in time to the first man and woman who ever set foot on this earth and let's stretch forward in time to the final human being to draw breath. Let's take all of that mountain of sin, that universe of sin, and let's find what is, let's tally it and find out what is the just punishment for that. That is what Jesus bore on the cross. We can't even mentally conceive of it, much less uh, have any sense of what that was like to have the full wrath of God against all sin poured out on himself. And we think of the agony physically of being crucified, but that was nothing compared to what was going on in Jesus' soul. So many times people look at this and say, well, what Jesus is, is doing uh, is saying that the Father has somehow forsaken him in that horrible moment in which the full wrath of God is being poured out on him. And we might point to things like 2 Corinthians 5.21, this mystery that Paul talks about when he's talking about the crucifixion. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. It's like Jesus on the cross was made sin itself. And some people think, well, that means that, that at that moment on the cross, the Father uh, forsook the Son. The Father turned his back on the Son. And when Jesus quotes this psalm, he's expressing that, that sense of, of forsaking and of breaking that is happening at the cross. I used to think that until somebody pointed out to me a couple of verses before the one I just read. 2 Corinthians 519 Paul is talking about the crucifixion he says in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself and what I get from that is not this sense of uh, here you take it and I'll I'll turn my back on you but the sense that the son and the father were together accomplishing the redemption of creation and as the Father was going through with the heart-rending task of pouring out his full wrath against all sin on the only beloved Son, the Son was willingly receiving that wrath. And I don't think there was any separation in the process. I think together they were accomplishing the reconciliation of the world. So if that's not what Jesus is doing when he quotes this, if he's not indicating that there's some kind of a break happening there, what is going on? Well, I think we're going to need to read the whole psalm to get the sense of why Jesus quoted it. But I do think that when Jesus quoted the opening line of this psalm, uh, he wanted us to open this up in our Bibles and see what David was talking about when he said these words. And I'll tell you something before we even get further into this message. David recants his opening lines. By the end of the psalm, he doesn't say God has forsaken me. He says God doesn't forsake. 
That's, how, that's the way it feels in the moment. But as he works his way through this, w- talking to God about it, he recognizes that's not the true situation. And I think Jesus references this in the same spirit in which David speaks these words. I am in utter agony. But I want you to know what's on the end of this, what's on the other side of this. So pull out Psalm 22 and figure it out. David felt in this moment like God had abandoned him. And even Jesus used these same words as he hung on the cross. How do you respond to God in your moments of great anguish? Let's keep reading verse 3. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Have you all seen The Fiddler on the Roof? I love the character Tevye, the father. He's such a lovable character. And one of the really fun things in the movie are he has these daughters that create nothing but trouble for him. And uh, as he's dealing with each of them, he, they want something and he's trying to get them to do something else and there's this conflict with each one of them in one way or another and he, there are these moments where Tevye's by himself and he's thinking about it and he kind of talks to himself out loud about it. Well, this is uh, what my daughter should be doing and then he'll say, but on the other hand, and then he looks at the other side of the thing, the question, and, but on the other hand, and he just keeps going back and forth. Well, that's really what David is doing in this psalm. He goes back and forth between these extremes. He begins with this expression of utter despair. And notice in verse 3, he completely switches focus. Wait a minute. What do I know about God? He's holy. He sits enthroned on the praises of Israel. You know why Israel praises God? Because he's good. Because he is worthy of praise. And not just that. Our fathers, my ancestors, they face really terrible circumstances. And guess what? Every time they trusted in God, they were delivered. God didn't abandon. They cried out and were rescued. They trusted in you and they were not put to shame. David rehearses history. He says, you know what? This is how I feel right now. But if I look in the broader scope of things, it turns out really God actually does come through. It's happened time and time again. In his anguish, David remembered how God had been faithful in the past. How about you? How has God's faithfulness in the past helped you face difficult moments in your life? Let's keep reading verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in Yahweh. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. 
we flip back from his focus on God to his focus on himself. And he says, man, I'm, I'm so down. I'm so crushed. I don't even feel human at this point. I'm, I'm nothing but a worm. I'm the worst of the worst. I am the refuse that is left in the garbage heap. I'm scorned by the whole human race. Despised by my own people. They see me and they mock me. They make faces at me. They shake their heads. And they laugh at me for my trust in you. Oh, right, yeah. The mighty David, the guy who killed Goliath, the guy, God, God's favorite little boy. Well, you don't look so favorite now, do you? Where's this divine favor now, David? The whole army of Israel is chasing you down like a dog. Where's this delight of God in you? See, when David forms his opinion of himself based on the people around him, he decides he's a worm. That can happen when we take our eyes off of God and put them on people around us and try to form identity that way. We never live up to anyone's expectations. Here's another point of connection with Jesus as he hung on the cross. Matthew 27, 43, this is what the chief priests and scribes were saying at the foot of the cross. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. They're all too happy to mock Jesus in very much a paraphrased version of the way David described his enemies mocking him. When he looks at others around him to shape his identity, David finds that he's worthless. How have you found that allowing people around you to define who you are leads to unhealthy perceptions of yourself. I want to talk about this. We live in a society that is obsessed with identity. And it's, it's bizarre the things that we are uh, finding that are being pushed on our children. Uh, so that children are told, you can't just be whatever you happen to be. You have to construct your identity yourself and to just go with what seems to be uh, what you are is not enough you got to be more creative than that you got to come up with something to impress your peers and we see this as affirming but it really isn't it's tremendously tearing down it's saying you're not worth anything until you impress me enough that you're something special and our children are facing this, and they're growing up in this, and our society is throwing the burden of identity on them, claiming that it's their decision, but really it's society putting the pressure. And it's men around us hounding us to de declare ourselves worthy. And it's not going to work. 
All that comes from that is a sense of worthlessness. We never feel like we've got it quite right. We've never measured up right. We don't do enough or we're not good enough or we haven't done it right. David found that when he looked to those around him to define who he is. But let's, let's flip back again. Verse 9, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. David has heard what other people have to say about him, but then he goes back and remembers, what is my identity in God? And he says, you know what? I can't, and David apparently was one of these people. Some people are this way. I had a, my, my father's mother, my grandmother on my father's side was this kind of person. Uh, she said that she never knew a moment when she didn't know God. That she grew up in a very difficult circumstance. Her mother died and she ended up having to kind of raise all of her younger siblings. And all along she just prayed. And there was never a moment in her life where she was conscious of not being in this relationship with God. And that's what David's describing. He's saying, I've known you since before I was born it feels like. And you have been the one who has always shaped what my life is all about. You have been the one who has given the context for what and who I am. David found his identity not in others, not in himself, but in God. How is this the best way to discover our own identity? Verse 11, be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. We have a, a, a pretty big section here from verse 11 to 21. David is basically describing his situation and he uses colorful imagery to paint a picture for us. He is surrounded by enemies intent on destroying him, on tearing him to pieces. And he says, there is nobody to help. I have no way of surviving this, God. There's nothing I can do to avoid disaster here. So he says, God, you who were faithful to my ancestors, be faithful to me now. He describes bulls of Bashan. Bashan, if you've been to Israel, you know that's the really pretty part. Uh, on the northeastern slopes, the rolling hills there, the grassy green hills. I mean, that's like a cow's paradise, you know. And uh, the best cows in Israel were in Bashan. The fattest and strongest and best uh, fed cows in Israel were in Bashan. And at this time, apparently, there were also some wild oxen in this area that were not domesticated and were tremendously dangerous. You could, you could lose your life if you ran across one of these. That's kind of what he's describing. Like he's surrounded by the strongest bulls in all of Israel. And they're ready to gore him to death. And wait, let's switch metaphors. No, it's not bulls. It's predators. It's lions. Tooth and claw. They want to tear me to pieces. 
Verse 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my, stump, my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. David describes here how he feels. He says, I feel like I'm... I'm I'm ebbing away. My life is just draining out of me. I can't, I can't do this much longer. All my bones are out of joint. The, the Hebrew there is more the idea of my bones are scattered. It's like uh, he can envision already that the devouring has taken place. The lions have strewn his bones about. He's torn to pieces already. My heart, my will inside of me to keep on pushing. It's melting. It's melting inside of me. I, I don't have the will. I don't have the strength to keep going. I'm dying of thirst. My tongue sticks to my jaws. There's another point of connection with Jesus on the cross. While he hung there, he said, I am thirsty. And asked for drink. Verse 16. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. In the ancient Near East, dogs were not viewed favorably. They were not domesticated animals. They were scavengers that just ran about. If you've ever seen a mutt out in a a slum somewhere that's the only kind of dogs they had uh, they, they didn't have pets um, so in, in, in the Bible anytime somebody's being called a dog it's an insult it's not uh, you know you're loyal and really faithful no it's, it's you're, you're, you're nothing you're, you're just a, a, a leech on society a scavenger and uh, so he, he uses another image bulls, lions, dogs and he, he, he uh, says that they are all around him and he describes them as evildoers as wicked people it says they pierced my hands and feet. Of course, David did not, that we know of, experience that literally. He's being poetic, but here's another point of connection with Jesus on the cross. They literally pierced his hands and feet. Verse 17, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. David's malnourished, and his bones are sticking out everywhere, and he describes uh, how his enemies are eager to take what meager things he has left and just divide them up among them and be done with him. Again, what David describes here poetically has a literal point of connection with Jesus on the cross. As he hung there, the soldiers cast lots to decide who would get his clothing. Verse 19, But you, O Yahweh, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. 
Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. He kind of wraps up those three metaphors in reverse order here at the end. He says, God, save me from all of this, the dogs, the lions, the oxen, all these forces arrayed against me. God, I am all alone, and if you don't come through, I'm toast. David faced insurmountable opposition. The forces arrayed against him were just too strong. And yet he chose to entrust his safety to God and God alone. How have you faced the things in your life that are more than you can handle? Verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear Yahweh, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Remember I told you that David ends up recanting his opening words? Talks about God forsaking him, not listening to him. Now he says the exact opposite. Having thought through, having laid before God what he's feeling and what's going on in his heart and remembering who God is, now he can look to the future and know with certainty the reality of his current situation. And this is only going to play out one way. I will be vindicated. Ultimately, one way or another, God will come through. In fact, he has a sense of what God's going to do. I'm going to be restored to my brothers. I'm going to be restored to my siblings. I'm going to find myself once more, not running in the hills, hiding. I'm going to find myself in the very center of the worship of the people of God. God is going to restore me to community. And I am going to sing my heart out. In fact, let me start now. If you know anything about Yahweh, praise him. All of you, praise him, glorify him, stand in awe of him. Because God is faithful. He doesn't hide from us. Verse 25, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise Yahweh. May your hearts live forever. When David brings his despair to God, he comes to remember and recognize that there's only one way things are going to work out when we have trusted ourselves to God. And that one way is community and glory. Forever. 
He knows what's coming. He doesn't have to be there now to know it. Even though in the present David couldn't see it, he knew that God would rescue him and restore him to community so that he could lead others to praise him. How have you seen God rescue you and use your story to lead others to praise him? I can think of some of you that have caused me to trust God. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to Yahweh, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to Yahweh, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. That he has done it. When David brings his agony before God, not only does he see the future where he himself is restored to community, but he sees the bigger picture of what God is up to. God is not just concerned about David. He's not just concerned that David have his best life now. He's concerned that the whole earth can come to know him and trust him and benefit from his loving care. And guess what? David discovers that he is part of what God is using to benefit the rest of the world. That even his pain and suffering and agony is going to result in benefit to the rest of the human race. Not just to the ends of the earth, but for posterity, to, for the rest of time. You know there are people in Africa today who read this psalm just like we're reading it right now here. You know how far we are from where David lived? And here we've got this psalm in our hands. What he said happened. God has used David's experience to touch lives more than a thousand years later, more than almost, uh, well, more than 2,000 years later. In far, the furthest flung corners of the earth, God is still benefiting others by David's experience. David understands that he's, he's just a little point in this huge thing that God is up to. And that God is going to be benefiting others through him. Now that's David. Do you see any parallels with what Jesus was accomplishing in his agony on the cross? You think maybe some other people have benefited from that to this day, to the ends of the earth? I don't think Jesus accidentally quoted the opening line of this psalm. I think he wanted us to understand that he knew what David was talking about. That even though right that, at that moment he felt like he felt the utter despair of being the object of the full wrath of God against all sin, he still knew 
that from this would come praises to God that would extend to the ends of the earth and to the end of time. He knew this, which is why he quoted it. David sees himself as part of God's work to draw to himself the entire human race and even future generations. How are you a part of this too? No one likes to suffer. I don't know anybody that enjoys it. When we do, we may feel that God is distant, aloof, uncaring. David felt that way. Jesus did too as he hung on that cross. But David realized the truth of his situation. God does not fail those who trust in him. One way or another, he will come through and the result is inevitably going to be that we will have a story to tell that will call others to faith in God. This witness issues forth to the ends of the earth and down through the ages. This was true of David in this moment of crisis it was even more true of Jesus as he hung on that cross dying for the sins of the world. I think today we're called, we're challenged by David and by Jesus to turn our hearts to God in praise and in faith, in trust, so that he will rescue us and make our lives beacons of hope so that others can find the same rescue. We're going to sing a song of invitation. I want you to consider for a moment what you've heard in God's word today and how God would have you respond to what you've heard. If you're here today and you don't really know God the way David has talked about him, if you know God in, in theory, but you don't know him as my God, you, you don't have this personal relationship with him, I want to invite you today, this is your opportunity to come and talk with somebody who can explain to you a little bit about how we can start this relationship with God in Jesus Christ. Maybe you already know Jesus. You've already been following him and God has challenged you in some way through what you've heard today to make some kind of commitment to him or some kind of uh, decision you, he's brought you to and you want to share that with somebody. Maybe you just have, God's laid something on your heart and you need somebody to pray with you this morning. Whatever it is God's put on your heart, this is your time. Let's all stand and we'll have some people here at the front. You can come to either side and uh, there will be people here uh, to receive you and pray with you. Come while we sing.